0: In view of the fact that Christmas fell in between our last study in John 11 and this study in John chapter 12, permit me just to recap a little bit of what we have covered thus far. Jesus is doing ministry publicly, not only teaching in a way that is impressing some and infuriating others, but he's also performing miracles What John often refers to in his gospel as signs. You may recall that from our previous studies. And the reason that he refers to the miracles as signs is because the fact that Jesus can perform these miracles points to the fact, directs people toward the fact that Jesus is Messiah. The one promised by God, by the prophets, many, many years ago. The raising of Lazarus in John chapter 11, in fact, is the seventh sign of seven signs in John's gospel. It happened in John chapter 11, as I mentioned. It's the resurrection of Lazarus, the brother of two sisters, Martha and Mary, after he was dead and in the grave for how many days? Do you recall? Four days. He stinks, Martha said, surely at this point. Jesus said, remove the stone, and called him out. And Lazarus was raised from the dead. And in that moment, Jesus took the opportunity to say these profound and startling words. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. May God help us never to find controversy with the words of Jesus. Amen. This morning we're going to move from that event to the next event. John chapter 12. The first few words say this, six days before the Passover. So it sort of paves the way for us because in case you missed it and you don't have your sort of panoramic view of what's occurring in the gospel right now, this Passover that's coming up is the Passover on which Jesus is buried after his crucifixion. This is what we would call Passion Week. This is Passion Week. This means it goes one day, one day, one day, one day, one event after another in the conclusions of the gospel. So we're moving now at a relatively fast pace through the gospel. So I have three simple points for you this morning from this text that we're looking at together, and they go like this, the place of honor, the place of disdain, and the place of popularity. I may have changed disdain. I don't recall it. Come on over here. Thanks, baby. Are you nervous? A little. Okay. I know, right? I got me a good one there. Do you know the story of me and Dimey? Mom does. Tom is going, this is not in John 12. No. <coughs> Our first point this morning, that's another message, okay. The first point this morning is the place of honor. The place of honor. Three places we're looking at from our text today, the first of which is the place of honor. Lazarus has been raised. The controversy of Jesus and his miraculous ministry has stirred the religious leaders up to the extent that they are plotting to kill Jesus, it says in John chapter 11, verse 53. They are plotting to kill Jesus. So Jesus recoiled from the public ministry that he was doing, but he continues to do ministry in private among his disciples, among his closest friends. John chapter 12, Lazarus' sisters have everyone to their home after the resurrection of their brother Lazarus. So Mary is so moved by all that has taken place that she takes a very valuable ointment that she has and she pours it on Jesus' feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, I don't need to tell you what it's like to walk around in a dusty and dirty place with open-toed shoes, do I? This is quite the event that's taking place here. The ointment apparently was worth something like 300 denarii, it says. A denarii is a day's wage. Talking about approximately, excusing the holidays and so forth, about 300 denarii, essentially what we're talking about is an annual salary of ointment. I don't know if that's how much you paid, Charlie, for that Chanel or whatever that was for Lori, but... I'm letting some cats out of the bag today, aren't I? I'm a little loose because we haven't, you know, Christmas Eve is over. I was sweating that one. Either Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were wealthy, which is a very real possibility given the value of this, or the ointment was a family heirloom that was passed down and therefore not only valuable, but precious. Because after it was lost, there was no more. I think you and I need to note something, the guest of honor isn't Lazarus, it's Jesus. But I wonder if that would be the case today. Today I see a tendency to drift toward the saved rather than the savior. Today I see a tendency to drift toward the gift rather than the giver. Today I see a tendency to drift toward answered prayers rather than the prayers that simply bind us to Jesus. Friends, I'm not trying to judge, but I think we can all be guilty of this from time to time. I want you to notice how the focus isn't on Lazarus. I wonder if in our day and age we would have simply said thanks, Jesus, for doing what you did. Wow. Amazing. You can go now. We'll take the party from here. We have a tendency in our time and in our age to make everything, everything, our salvation the way we do ecclesiology and church philosophy, missions, social events, and social media, we have a tendency to make all of these things about us. We emphasize ourselves. We emphasize what has happened to us rather than the one who did the happening. May Jesus always be occupying in our lives a place of honor. Amen? Let me also note this, that while Christianity is always about being a servant, the person you serve sometimes is yourself. Let me say that again. Although Christianity is a faith that is based upon service and servanthood, sometimes the person that you need to serve, say me, sometimes the person you need to serve is yourself. Service can become a type of legalism, can't it? Or we create a list and check the things that we're doing and impressing ourselves with and impressing others, a type of program whereby we measure our goodness by how much we're doing. Of course I'm a Christian. Look at how much I do. But Christianity sometimes is about rest. Christianity sometimes is about stillness. I bring this to your attention because of what Psalm forty-six ten says. Be still and know that I am the Lord. I love what Jesus does in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus takes his disciples and he says, Come away with me for a while and rest. And then and then Mark kind of puts in there the reason he did this is because they didn't even have time to eat. They were doing so much ministry. Say amen if you're listening. Rest is biblical. Stillness is biblical. On the first day, God created, and the second day God created, and third, and fourth, and fifth. And on the seventh day, God said, I'm not gonna do anything today. I'm going to demonstrate to those I am going to create and bless that it is important to them to function and to rest. I love what George McDonald said. Rest is as 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 needful as toil. We have to work, amen. I don't know about your mortgage company, but they're not, you know, they're not into grace periods and stuff, you know. I'll take the month off, no big deal. No, they want what they are owed. But your body is owed rest. And sometimes, in the presence of the one we honor, we have to know which season it is. Is it a season of service in his honor? Or is it a season of rest in his honor? Now, I'm not saying stop serving people. No, like most things in the Christian life, service is about knowing the season beloved when Jesus comes to sit with you if you get busy you miss the season but church if Jesus commands you with conviction and opportunity to serve others and you decide to sit down and rest you miss the season you've got another season and martha She's running around the house trying to tidy things up. And she goes, Mary's not helping me at all. And Jesus says, she knows the season, man. She knows the season. Straighten the house later. Sit down and rest. Sit down and be with me. This might be a particularly poignant message since we have family and friends over constantly, right? You're like, did you make your bed? Are the dishes clean? Take them out of the dishwasher put them up. We want to be impressive to others. We want to put our best foot forward. We want to create a clean and respectful environment in which those who are critical will say, your house looks great. But sometimes we need to hear the word of Jesus. And it goes a little something like this. Sit down, be still, and rest. There will be a season for your busyness. It's kind of why Judas gets scolded. You know, Mary's there pouring pouring out this ointment that is worth an annual salary, right? She's worship. I mean, she lets her hair down, cleanses. What a mess that must have been. I think this is about as intimate as a woman could get with a man in this culture. If she could have held him and kissed him all over, his, she would have. But she respected him. And Jesus respected her. But she was longing to worship him in view of his majestic and miraculous power, the relationship that they had. They were obviously friends. And while she does this, of course, Judas, of whom John does not have a high opinion, says, look at this. She's wasted all this. We could have sold it. Could have sold it and given it to somebody. Verse 5 says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii, a year's wages, and given to the poor? He said this, John says, not because he cared about the poor, but because he kept the money sack and he always stuck his hand in it, took what he wanted. It would be like Ray and Vicente walking from here to there with $6,000 and helping themselves along the way between here and the office. Far be it from, for us for that to happen in our church. We know that's dishonorable. John comments, as he often does, about Judas' situation. He was a thief. And Jesus' answer to this situation in regards to Judas, him speaking into it, was leave her alone. You're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. So important to know the season, isn't it? How many of us are where we are in life because five years ago we missed the season? God said, I'm going to come into your life and live in a place of honor. And I want you to be still for a little while and enjoy me, my presence, personally with you. And we said, but I'm working on this at work, and i got this hobby going on, and I'm starting to see somebody, and they're becoming important to me. And, I got... and then five years have passed, and we've gone, oh, man, I hope he's still sitting there in a place of honor because I could really use the rest. Now we have this beautiful blessing from Jesus post-resurrection. I'll always be with you and I'll I'll never forsake you, amen? But wouldn't it just be easier if he said, sit down and shut up? If we would just sit down and shut up? Wouldn't it be easier if we didn't look back every five years and go, I messed up there, I messed up there, and God said this, and I didn't do it, and he said, be still, and I moved, and he said, move and go serve, and I stopped, and I got lazy? I think that's what we're learning here today. I think we're learning that when Jesus comes to our home, so to speak, on the heels of doing something awesome, it's okay for us to stop everything. And they say, hey, don't you want to go out? And you go, no, I just want to be with Jesus. Right now, that's what's important to me. Come on, you can do that Sunday. (laughs) No, no, I need to do that. Today, it's a season. I sense it. It's a season. But we're not all there, are we? We're not all there. And that leads us to our second point, and that's this, a place of irritation. So, so we see the place of honor. That's the first place that we see in the text. But the second place that we see is a place of irritation. Now, we shift a little bit here. It's kind of interesting because what's taking place is the crowd is so interested in Jesus and Lazarus and Martha and Mary because of what took place with the resurrection that it's that generated all this, all this draw. All this popularity, excitement, interest, and curiosity. And so the crowds are coming. It says when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but they wanted to see Lazarus. What's it look like when a guy was four days dead and raised? I don't know. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death on account of the fact that many of the Jews were going after him and believing Jesus. We move to the next section here in chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, and we see a place of irritation. Now, now as we turn this corner away from this intimate event surrounding Jesus as he occupies this place of honor to the circumstances surrounding Lazarus, whose resurrection by Jesus' hand has created this sort of blowback in Jesus' ministry, there's a shift in tone. There's no doubt about it. Chapter 11, we're told that they plotted to kill Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 53. Now in chapter 12, we're told that they're plotting to kill Lazarus too. Why? Why are they trying to kill Jesus and now they're trying to kill Lazarus too? Because when you're determined to be anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-life, anti-righteousness, anti-joy, you've got to kill everything good. You've got to kill everything good, everything that testifies to God's goodness that he's the Father of lights from whom all good things come. You've got to kill it. You can't let the, sh- the light shine. Any vestige or sign of goodness or righteousness has to be compromised so that it can rot with you since you've been compromised yourself. In postmodernism, this means making everything relative so that there is no right and wrong. Only that which is right and wrong according to your mores and values on any given day. In civic life, this means making everything legal so that what was once illegal, because it was unthinkable, becomes legal and acceptable, even praiseworthy and celebrated. In religious life, this means that the exclusivity of the gospel and the focus on Jesus as the one Savior of humankind is the one unforgivable and inexcusable offense. You can be religious. You can be crazy religious. You just can't say, Jesus. Jesus, 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 Jesus. When many people followed Jesus, the Jews, obviously by implication, the unbelieving Jews, the troublesome, rebellious Jewish leaders that he was dealing with throughout his ministry, they were irritated. Verse 11 says, Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You may hold a place of irritation for some people, church, If you are close enough to Jesus, that when they see you, they see his work. When people saw Lazarus, they saw Jesus. I'm wondering if when people see you, they see Jesus. I don't mean SBC. I don't mean this, that, or the other. I'm Jesus. Jesus. I don't mean, oh, you're religious. No, I'm not talking about all that. I'm wondering if when people see you who are unbelieving and in, they sort of antagonize religion or faith, if they see you, they get irritated because there's so much Jesus coming out of you, man. Every time you're around, it's Jesus. That they get irritated because to be around you to be around Jesus. (sighs) Some people are going to resent you because of your faith. You just need to be aware of that. Some people are going to find you disagreeable, not because you're ugly, but because you lovingly deny them the opportunity to defame our Savior and Lord. I love what Paul says, succinctly, and matter-of-factly, 2nd Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That cancels like 65% of the churches in America. Buy a nice car, I don't care. Buy a nice house, I don't care. If it's God's will to bless you with financially, don't forget to give. I pray that God makes all of you rich, and you give it all back. However God wants to bless you, I don't care. If you send me a handkerchief, it ain't going to do anything. If you write a check for $5,000 to the First Baptist Church of Cutler Ridge, I have no idea what God's going to do with you. These people on the television, they're Judas Iscariot, They're crooks. They're always sticking their hand in the money bag. Amen. Send in your seed so I can sow it. And God will, they're liars. They're false prophets and they're liars. Amen. When we look at the gospel, we see two promises that are undoubtable, undeniable. Jesus says, I will be with you until you get to glory. Glory. And the second one is, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But together, amen, together we will do this. But we have to be aware of the fact and work against this sort of American gospel on a regular basis that if we are Christians, we're going to be the irritation of some people. We just got to go, okay, that's the way it is. I can live with that. I don't know about you. I was irritable before Jesus. I'm worse now. (laughs) The reality of the matter is is we can speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. Some people don't want truth, and the reality is some people are so broken they don't want love either. That's God's business. It's not ours. That's, not, that's God's sovereign work. He's got to change hearts, and he's got to change lives. But what we have to be aware of is that here we are, Lazarus is running around kicking his heels, going, I was dead, but now I'm alive. Praise God, Jesus did a work in my life. And they go, we're going to kill you, bro. You aggravate us because you remind us of the one we refuse to believe in. Amen? You're going to be there sometimes. And if it happens... And when it happens, do not come crying to this church. Just remember what the apostles said. They they celebrated that they were counted worthy to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. I got beat up today for Jesus. Praise God! It's the second place we see in this text: place of honor, place of irritation. But thirdly, and finally, we see a place of popularity. We're going to wrap up with this this morning. place of popularity. Very quickly, if you look at the text, chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, after this, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done by him. And the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. That's when you go, listen, I don't know all the math and how the equation all works out. All I'm telling you is I was there, I saw it. I saw it. You cannot believe or you can believe. I'm telling you what I saw and therefore what I believe. Amen? Sometimes that's all we've got. Nothing wrong with that. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard. He had done this. What's the word? Sign. Miracle. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. They're saying it to each other, and they're saying, you're not, getting, you're not getting anywhere with this Jesus guy. The whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. So we move to our final point this morning the place of popularity. We often hear to, often refer to this historic event that we've just read together as the triumphal entry. Right, It is that entry, that pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry when he publicly and officially announces his Messiahship. At this point in his ministry, he is in such proximity to his crucifixion just days away. He is so close to being the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world that there is apparently no reason for secrecy, or diplomacy, or carefulness. Everything has unfolded according to God's sovereign plan, and now Jesus goes from private back to public. We've entered into what we refer to now as the Passion Week, and one of the most important events of that week, the final week that Jesus would be alive on earth, leading up to his crucifixion. So in view of everything that's happened, people go, get the branches, cut down the branch. They're waving branches. And the other gospel says they throw their coats on the ground and they start singing, Hosanna, blessed is the one, right? Let me just take a quick turn and say this. Popularity has taken an interesting meaning today, hasn't it? Between YouTube and social media, like Facebook, Instagram, and others, popularity is little more than angles, filters, and captions. As it is now, though, so it was then. Some people understood, others didn't, but there definitely was a lot of popularity, Some people were there because they believed and they were in awe of what Jesus had done and some people were there because they believed and they were in awe and they just wanted to find out what was up. This is a mixed group is what I'm saying. There is nothing in the text that suggests to us that every single person that was there saying Hosanna, blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord had any idea what they were saying. I am sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that many did. But I am equally as certain that there were many who didn't grasp what was really taking place here. They're crying out, Hosanna, which means bring salvation now. When? Now. And what is the second part? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. You get the language, right? I mean, you can, you can read in between the lines of what they're saying. They're saying, great Great, you're here, you're raising the dead, you're healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, you teach like nobody I've ever heard before, you're gonna lay everybody low, you're gonna take over right now, you're gonna put us back into a place of influence in the world, Israel's gonna be all that Israel was designed to be with this guy. Awesome. Luke's gospel says that the religious leaders started criticizing the people who were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus said, if they didn't say it, the stones will. This was an important moment. By the way, it's amazing how many so-called teachers don't know what they're talking about when it comes to Jesus. Verse 14 says, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The reason John quotes Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, that's where that quotation comes from. The reason he quotes that from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, 600 years before Jesus came, is because it's fulfilled prophecy. Everybody's fascinated by Prophecy. We've been watching the Harry Potter season, series. It's prophecy. What does the prophecy say? You know, Lord of the Rings thing, the prophecies. The reason people are fascinated by Nostradamus and all these other people that want to be accurate prophetically is because they're not accurate prophetically. If they say 4,000 things and three of them come to pass, they're not prophets. That's not the way it works. If you're a prophet, everything you say has to come to pass. In fact, there was even a safeguard built into the Old Testament. If you were somebody who said, thus says the Lord, this is what God told me to tell you, and it doesn't come to pass, they had to stone you to death. You're a false prophet. They don't play with that. You don't mess with God's word. Or if you said, this is what God told me to tell you, and it does come to pass, but they lead you toward another God. Even that is built into Deuteronomy. You've got you to stone them too. Listen, it's not about whether or not evil is powerful. It is. Do not play down the power of evil in this world. It can be impressive. It can be deceitful. It can even be sort of drawing... Don't play with stuff like that, man. You don't need to know your horoscope or what the lines on your hand mean. You need to know what John said. You hear what I'm saying? Your pastor's talking to you right now. Take your shoes off. I'm going to step on your feet. Don't bother with any of that stuff. You don't need to know horoscopes and this, that, and the other thing. What you need to know is God's word. If you can't pass a test on this, it doesn't really matter what else you know. You know? the most important thing that you need to know is in this book. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 says, The Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to the prophets first. Why would God say that to Amos? Why would Amos tell us the Lord does nothing before revealing first to his prophets? Because God has paved the way prophetically so that we know by verifying the prophecies that we're on the right path. Jesus fulfills the prophecies. No one else fulfills the prophecies. One prophecy is that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. So I don't care about the guy in Doral or anybody else who thinks they're Jesus. If they weren't born in Bethlehem, they're disqualified. I'm sorry to dumb it down like that, but it's dumb. It's the way it is. Period. Period. Please note, Jesus isn't riding a war horse like a successful political or military leader. He is riding a donkey, and in Mark's gospel, it says that the donkey is not broken in. It has never been ridden before. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to ride an animal that's not broken in. Right? If you go out to ride horses, you're like, give me the oldest nag you got out here. I want somebody tired and has been ridden a lot. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus finds a young donkey that is not broken in, that is a wild animal. Why does the text tell us this? Because Jesus has control over nature. Jesus can do, without any issue, what you and I would find very difficult, if not impossible. Interestingly, verse 16 says that, John says, the disciples didn't get it verse 16 says his disciples did not understand until later until after the resurrection upon reflection in light of the circumstances and then it became clear to them let me take a moment and say this hey amen if you're listening i know we're we're going to wrap up here you may not have all of christianity figured out or understood it's okay There's a truth to this faith. There's an absolute aspect to this system. And while we may be learning and growing, and dare I say, changing by way of God's truth, the truth is not. Our inability to understand something doesn't dictate its truthfulness.